welcome to another installment of the Boris at Work podcast. This episode is a special one. It is a rebroadcast of the firm's November 8th webinar entitled OSHA's Private Sector Vaccination and Testing Mandate. Uh, it was a popular program, so we decided to put it out for a little wider distribution. Bit of housekeeping before we get to the podcast. As mentioned during the webinar, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals issued a stay of the ETS, the Emergency Temporary Standard. So it remains inactive and stayed at this point. After that stay was enacted, there was a lottery put in place and our very own Sixth Circuit won the lottery to decide the ultimate fate of the ETS. In the meantime, just recently, OSHA has filed a motion with the Sixth Circuit asking the Sixth Circuit to lift the stay while the case is pending or in the alternative to modify the stay to allow the ETS testing and masking requirements for unvaccinated employees to go into effect. So as it stands right now, in the meantime, stay is still in place and employers should decide whether they want to wait for the Sixth Circuit's ultimate decision or they want to, whether they want to prepare to implement the ETS immediately. And without any further ado, I will take you to the episode. Make sure you rate and review the podcast. That helps us out. Thanks. Have a great day. And now for opening remarks and introductions, I would like to turn the call over to Bob Harris, partner at Bory Sater, Seymour & Peace. Thank you, Sarah, and uh, welcome everyone to this um, special edition of our Bory's On Call webinar series. Uh, you all recall that back uh, on September 9th, uh, President Biden announced a series of programs that were intended to more aggressively combat uh, the COVID pandemic. Uh, and in, in doing so, he announced programs uh, to mandate vaccination for most federal employees and federal contractors, and also for healthcare workers. Uh, he also announced then that large employers would be required to ensure that their workers either be vaccinated or undergo weekly testing. Uh, so guidance for the federal contractors was released uh, in late September. Uh, then finally, last Thursday, the other two long-awaited uh, emergency regulations were finally released. One came from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services requiring employees of participating healthcare facilities to be vaccinated for COVID-19. Uh, Robin Amicon and Liam Gruz are, are gonna spend a few minutes discussing this rule toward the end of our time together today. But the bulk of our time today is going to be spent discussing the Emergency Temporary Standard, or ETS, uh, as it is known, that was issued by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration that's applicable to employers with 100 or more employees. Uh, ever since um, President Biden announced that the ETS would be issued, employers nervously, uh, I think, have awaited answers to the numerous and, and important questions uh, that were raised by this plan. Well, the ETS is out now, along with um, guidance materials and, and FAQs that answer many, if not all, uh, of those questions. And we're here to address as many of those as we can in the time that we have. Uh, there's a lot to unpack here, so we're going to just jump right in. Um, first, many of you likely have heard by now that the, the Fifth Circuit on Saturday issued an order temporarily blocking enforcement of the ETS, uh, and so some of you may, may then be wondering why we're still talking about this. So we're going to address the challenges being mounted to the ETS at the end of the presentation, but suffice it to say uh, for now that the Fifth Circuit's stay 
does not mean employers should stop preparing for the enforcement of the ETS. And that's particularly true given the relatively short time that they have to implement the rules' many requirements. Um, and so uh, with that in mind, we're going to start by looking at who is covered by the OSHA ETS. So if you're a private employer who employs at least 100 employees, you are covered. So the 100 employee threshold counts all employees, uh, and that's firm or corporate-wide, not just at particular locations. So if you have 25 employees at, at, say, each of four locations, the standard applies to you at all of your locations. Um, and when you're counting to 100, you do count part-time employees. Those are included in the numbers. Uh, also included are employees who work at home or in the field. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit later that some of those folks may not actually be subject to some of the provisions of the ETS, uh, but nonetheless, they do count, they do, uh, count they're included in the count, uh, as to whether or not you have 100 employees. Uh, next, if you utilize contingent employees that are provided by a separate staffing company, those workers do not count toward the 100, even if they work on site. So in this sort of joint employer type of situation, uh, what, we've, uh, what we're told by the ETS is that those employees are only counted by the staffing company and not the receiving company. So we don't include those in the 100 count. Uh, also, we don't include independent contractors. They don't count toward the 100 employee threshold. Uh, however, if you have temporary or seasonal employees, they do count. They if they only count if they are employed uh, at any time when the ETS is in effect. So if they were employed for the summer, they're not employed now, and they're not going to be employed, and they're not employed down the road, then they don't count. But any if they have any employment during the effective dates of the ETS, then you do count them toward the hundred. So the interesting one of the interesting things about the the coverage here is if you're under a hundred as of the effective date, which was November 5th last week, um, but thereafter you climb over the 100 employee threshold, you do become covered by the ETS. And once you're covered, uh, the standard continues to apply to you for the duration of the ETS, even if after that you then, some, you then drop below 100. So uh, basically once you're in, you're in, uh, and, and that doesn't change. <clears throat> Another question that came up is, um, if, you're if you're a covered employer, you do have the 100 employee, you meet the 100 employee threshold, uh, and your workforce is represented by a union, uh, which is governed by a collective bargaining agreement, does the ETS still apply? And the answer is yes, it does still apply, and you have to follow the minimum requirements of the ETS. That said, uh, it should be noted <clears throat> that you may have an obligation to bargain over the implementation of these minimum requirements or any other requirements that you impose that go beyond the minimum requirements of the ETS. So what employers are not covered then by the ETS? Well, obviously employees, employers with, with fewer than 100 employees are not covered, at least not yet. Um, so you're not covered. If you're a workplace that's covered by the executive order requiring vaccines for federal contractors and subcontractors, 
you're not subject to the ETS. And that's a theme that you'll see get ro rolls through here. This, the, the scheme was, was fashioned in a way that no employee should be covered by more than one of these uh, rules at any one time. So if you're covered by the federal contractor and subcontractor order, then you're not going to be subject to this ETS. Likewise, if you're covered by the CMS rule that, that governs Medicare and Medicaid participating healthcare facilities, you're not going to be subject to the ETS, at least while the CMS rule remains in effect. Federal agencies, um, other than the U.S. Post Office, um, are already covered by an executive order that requires them to implement a mandatory vaccination program, so they also are not covered by this ETS. Um, state and local public employers in Ohio, for example, and in other states that don't have separate OSHA-approved state plans are exempt from, from OSHA, and so the ETS will not apply to those employers. Lastly, sort of in this in this rundown, and this is the, the really fun one, if you're an employer in a state that does have an OSHA-approved state plan, so you've opted out of the OSHA scheme specifically, but you've adopted a state plan that is at least as effective as the OSHA requirements, and it's been approved by OSHA, if you're in those states, um, those states are going to be required to implement uh, provisions that are at least as effective as the ETS, so then if you have at least 100 employees, those requirements will apply to you. Um, but states that fail to amend their state plans, so you're not going to be subject to these requirements if you're in one of those states until the state plan is amended. If the state fails to amend their plan, um, note that their plans are subject to revocation or revision um, so to, as to bring them within the, the federal enforcement authority. But there's some... It's going to get a little complicated in those states as to the timing uh, of when this all becomes applicable if you're in one of those states. Okay, so the next question that's raised on the coverage issue is, if you're a covered employer, are all of your employees automatically subject to the requirements of the ETS? And the answer is not necessarily. Um, the standard does not apply to employees while working from home. Uh, who work exclusively outdoors or who don't report to a workplace where other persons are present. Now, I will note that OSHA is going to view these exceptions very strictly and very narrowly, um, and so you've got to be careful if you're going to consider those folks not um, um, subject to the standards, but according to the rule, those folks are exempt. Okay, so that's a quick overview of, of who is covered. Uh, so now let's see what those employers who are covered have to do. Uh, and for that, we'll kick it off with the vaccination provisions and my partner, Ben Scheffler. Thanks, Bob. So at the outset, I think it's important to note that while this is described by a lot of people as a vaccine mandate, it's really not a mandate. Um, those who are trying to challenge us in court describe it as such uh, because it's advantageous to them to describe it as such. OSHA, if you look at their documents, what they say basically is we would prefer to implement a vaccine mandate, but for 10 different reasons, we're not going to do that. And they can give all the reasons they want, but ultimately the primary reason is because had this been an actual mandate, then it would have been very hard legally to defend. So what, what we have here actually is a choice between 
a mandatory vaccination program or allowing a uh, opt-out with testing and masking. Even if you choose to require all of your employees to be vaccinated, you would still need to provide a testing and mask opt-out potentially as an accommodation, which we'll discuss later today. Um, also of note, if you so choose, you can have a mandatory vaccination program for a portion of your workforce, uh, but also have another portion of your workforce allowed to test or opt out. Practically speaking, the first thing to consider right now is how are you going to determine your employee's vaccination status? And what I would say is, you know, even if the ETS ultimately never goes into effect, um, having this information is a helpful exercise. It's useful in making safety decisions going forward. So as frustrating as I know all of this is, for this first step, you can at least view it as something that, that I think is arguably a best practice, even aside from the ETS. In determining whether your employees are vaccinated, a couple concepts to keep in mind. First, the definition of fully vaccinated means two weeks after completing the last dose. And if it's a Johnson & Johnson, it's two weeks after that first shot. If it's a two-dose, then it's two weeks after the two-dose. Of note here, booster shots. There was a lot of questions as to whether that might come into play here. And luckily, the answer is no. Boosters are not part of the definition of fully vaccinated. So you don't have to worry about that. Uh, another helpful point, in the definition of approved vaccines, it, it includes vaccines that were approved by the World Health Organization. So if you have an employee uh, who took AstraZeneca or you know, another similar vaccine, that would count as a fully vaccinated employee. So let's say we've got our employees. We're asking them, you vaccinated or you not? Big question is, how do we prove it? And the ETS and the FAQs provide a specific list of documentation that an employee must provide. Uh, top of the list, as you would expect, are the COVID-19 vaccination cards. But there are also four or five other examples of documentation, uh, including records from healthcare providers, pharmacies, and other types of official governmental records. There is also a catch-all as a last resort. Uh, if the employee says that they were vaccinated but that they have lost their vaccine card or for whatever reason cannot obtain documentation, then they are allowed to provide a signed statement attesting to their vaccination status. The, if you look in the FAQs and in the sample OSHA policy, there is specific language that needs to be included in that attestation. Uh, and most importantly, it must say in there that the employee recognizes that they are essentially signing this under penalty of criminal legal action if they are providing false information. One bright spot in terms of documentation, uh, if you are an employer who had proactively sought out your employee's vaccination status prior to this ETS, and you have maintained proof of that, then you do not need to request proof again. And importantly here, in that context, this is, this is true even if your prior proof was not the same level of proof that's required now. So to give you an example, 
if you had previously set up a portal or you had an email system where an employee would have to respond and state, you know, I am fully vaccinated, and you have retained a copy of that email or of that portal response, then that is sufficient under the ETS. You do not need to go back and ask the employee to provide a copy of their vaccine card or other similar documentation. One issue that I think a lot of people have, have discussed and OSHA acknowledges in a number of different places is uh, fraud. So you know, what happens if the employee prevent, tries to provide you with, with false information? Good news is OSHA does not require you to be the fraud police, um, and, and it, it really cautions the employee on a number of cases, number of instances that, that if they provide false information that they are subject to potential criminal prosecution. On the other hand, they do say you can't invite or facilitate fraud. And really, as a practical matter, that just means it has to pass the smell test. So, you know, if you've got a card that says the employee received a Pfizer vaccine spelled F-I-Z-A-R, then you probably should take a closer look. Beyond that, it is not your job, and OSHA does not expect you to investigate the accuracy of employees' representations to you. All right, so we've got the information. Question is now, what do we do with it? Uh, there, there are two types of records related to vaccines that you need to create and then maintain. The first is simply a list, and an Excel spreadsheet is probably the easiest way to do this. And the list will contain each employee, their primary location of employment, and then indicate whether that employee is, and then there, there's four categories here, whether that employee is fully vaccinated, partially vaccinated, not fully vaccinated because of a medical or religious accommodation, and then fourth, not fully vaccinated because they haven't provided sufficient proof of vaccination. The second record you need to maintain is a copy of the underlying proof for each employee on that list. And in terms of proof, uh, there are a number of different options. You obviously can have a paper copy, but that'll be cumbersome. Um, electronic forms are acceptable, including PDFs, and also including a digital photo. So if, if the employee has a, a photo of their vaccine card and uh, it's legible, then that is sufficient proof of vaccination. These records, both the employee list and the proof of vaccination, are considered confidential employee medical records. That means they must be stored securely and separate from the employee personnel file. Um, one small victory for employers, uh, even though they are classified as medical records under OSHA, they do not have to be maintained for 30 years, which is the typical OSHA requirement. They only need to be maintained while this ETS is in effect. So, obviously, you're going to probably have a, a subset of employees who are not vaccinated. The ETS is designed to encourage them to become vaccinated and to, um, to help them along the way, there are a couple of requirements on employers. First is to provide a reasonable amount of paid time off for each primary vaccine dose. And reasonable time off is defined as up to four hours, and that's time 
um, used to schedule and receive the dose and possibly return back to work. Importantly, with, this, with the four hours for receiving the vaccine, you cannot offset that by PTO or sick leave. In other words, you cannot require the employee to use their accrued sick leave or PTO. Uh, in terms of the length of the leave, we said four hours, but if it takes more than four hours and the employee can provide a, a reasonable explanation, and I would advise you to have them do that in writing, um, then you should provide them with more than four hours. However, you do not have to provide them with paid time beyond those four hours. So four hours is the cap. In addition to the paid leave to receive the vaccine, you have to provide paid leave for recovery from potential side effects of the vaccine, and that's, again, for each dose. Uh, and if you look at the OSHA um, FAQs and related documents, OSHA says that if you provide up to two days of leave per dose, then that is presumptively reasonable. So that, that's the number we would go with is provide up to two days. Uh, again, importantly, and in contrast to with the, in the contrast to the leave for receiving the vaccine, when you are talking about leave for experiencing side effects, you can require the employee to use his or her accrued sick leave or PTO. Uh, but if they don't have any accrued sick leave or PTO, then you have to pay. You cannot require them to sort of go into the negative on that amount. All right, so we've got employees who hopefully are vaccinated, and if not, they're going to go get vaccinated. Uh, but we all know there's going to be a fair number that remain unvaccinated. And for those, we are going to talk about how we go through the testing process. And I will turn it over to my partner, Dan Clark, to discuss that topic. Thank you, Ben. Uh, the the section um, or the the, uh, the preference of the ETS is certainly uh, to to get employees vaccinated, and uh, the the testing requirement um, and testing element of the ETS is, is really designed, you know, one to to cover those those employees who choose not to get vaccinated. But um, but certainly doesn't make it um, easy for those employees uh, to do so, and that's going to create uh, some issues for employers who've got to get their employees either vaccinated or tested each week. Um, so let's start with um, employees who don't need to be tested. Um, first category, hopefully the large category, is vaccinated employees. Those would be those individuals for whom you have a record as Ben just described, of uh, a vaccination on file for them. Um, additionally, remote workers who don't come to a work site uh, don't need to be tested. However, if they're going to come into work, they need to have uh, a negative test uh, on file uh, within seven days. So uh, if you've got someone that, that is primarily remote but you know, comes in once or twice a month to a work site, uh, they're going to need to um, schedule those tests such that when they are at, at a work location, uh, they have a, re a record of a negative test. Uh, additionally, also excused from the testing requirement 
uh, are employees who have tested positive uh, or been diagnosed by a healthcare provider within the last 90 days um, of COVID-19. Um, and, and then finally, uh, the, the ETS does acknowledge that there may be uh, employees that seek or obtain religious or medical exemptions from the testing requirement. It doesn't address how those requests should be handled or what to do with those employees, but it does acknowledge that those requests might be made and that Title VII and the ADA would require employers to at least consider those requests. So um, let's talk a little bit about, about testing first uh, and the types of tests uh, that are out there uh, as we're all about to become uh, experts in lab laboratory sciences here. Uh, the FDA over the course of the pandemic has approved 250 different tests for, um, uh, for diagnosing uh, COVID-19. Most of those tests have been approved uh, with an EUA, an emergency youth authorization. All 250 tests that have been approved by the FDA uh, satisfy uh, OSHA's requirement. So it doesn't matter which test you use as long as the, the, ET, the, the FDA has approved it. And the reality is, is that, that many employees are going to choose different tests and, and uh, there's not an obligation on the employer to, to direct them to specific tests. Any test will do. Uh, a little bit of background on the different tests that are out there. Uh, if you, the, the first series of tests that were approved in uh, the first half of 2020 were, were PCR tests. Uh, PCR tests are performed in a laboratory setting. Uh, the, um, uh, the test looks, looks for specific genetic markers of the COVID-19 virus. And um, those, th those tests are, because they're done in a lab setting, they have to be, the samples are collected, sent to a lab, tested, and the results sent back. Results for those tests uh, can take uh, many hours or days uh, to get back, and the tests tend to be fairly expensive, uh, but they are also uh, the gold standard in terms of accuracy. Uh, another category of tests that, that has, has come out of the market, um, and many of you have probably encountered them, is antigen testing. Uh, these, these specific tests look for specific molecules that are um, on the surface of the COVID-19 virus. Uh, these can be obtained over the counter. If you go to a drugstore or grocery store, uh, many of them can be performed in a healthcare provider's office, in an office setting without the need uh, to send it out uh, to a lab. Uh, typically, um, you know, a, a swab uh, is taken from the nose and added to, um, to a, a testing kit and uh, the results uh, can be read within 15 to 30 minutes. Uh, so as a result, these tests are cheap. Uh, they are uh, timely and that, that doesn't take long, uh, but there is a trade-off uh, with, um, with the speed uh, associated with them. The antigen tests tend to have a higher false positive rate. Uh, and given the, um, the, impact, you know, the impact that a positive test has on a employee, that can be problematic. Another category of testing that you'll see mentioned in the ETS is called pool testing. 
And, and this is where a collection of multiple samples from multiple employees are combined and sent to a lab in a single PCR test. So if we had four employees, we take, collect a sample from each of them, combine those samples into a, a, a single sample, and then test it. If that, if that comes back negative, that counts as a negative test for all four employees. And when we're talking about um, a, a PCR test that takes time and money to complete, uh, having, having the ability to reduce four, four employees to one test and getting a negative test for all of them, uh, there's cer certainly some benefit to that. The downside is if you combine, um, combine samples in a pool testing and get a positive test, then all four of those employees need to be retested individually to identify which of them uh, is positive. Um, so you can combine more than four. You can you know, continue to combine them, but at some point as you add, add more and more to the pool, uh, you may get the test results back quicker, but your likelihood of getting a positive hit um, uh, goes up. So the, um, the antigen tests are, are certainly uh, the most popular. Uh, they're easy. They can be passed out at schools. They can be passed out at grocery stores. Um, it, for the purposes of the ETS, though, they cannot be self-administered and self-read uh, in order to qualify. Uh, if you've traveled to a, a, a destination that requires a negative test within a certain period of time, if you've tried to go to a, a theatrical presentation that requires a negative test, uh, you're familiar with, with these options, but the, the, the test uh, ha typically comes with an option to have the results read by some third party and verified. Uh, you, you cannot simply rely on an employee to come in and say, I tested myself at home with an antigen test from, from the drugstore and it's, it's, uh, it came back negative. There has to be some uh, some verification, either from a provider, from a, a telehealth provider, or even the employer, but the test can't be self-administered and self-read. Um, so keep keep that in mind. Another big question uh, we've gotten a lot of, or we were certainly waiting to hear uh, before uh, OSHA released the standard, is who pays for the tests? Uh, the, the ETS is pretty clear that employers are not required to pay for the test. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more um, about the wage and hour implications of that, but uh, there may be um, uh, there may there may be uh, incentive for employers to do that because if you have someone that's not tested, that's not vaccinated, uh, they can't they can't be allowed to come to work until they have a test. So if somebody can't handle the test on their own or doesn't get a test on their own, many employers may choose to bear the cost of the testing in order to allow that get the person back to work. Uh, once you have a, a test result in terms of documentation, just like um, uh, the record of vaccination, employers are required to maintain a record of each test uh, provided by each employee. Uh, and as with the vaccination records, those uh, may only be or are, are going to be maintained <clears throat> as long as the ETS uh, is in effect. So we've got a lot of questions. Um, uh, still to be answered, and logistically, the, the testing protocols are going to be one of the biggest challenges uh, that employers face, and, and certainly OSHA has said there's a sufficient supply um, available on the market, but getting tests available where they're needed is going to be something that employers are going to have to think, uh, think about quickly to make sure that the employees that need testing can get it.
Um, now, with that, I'm going to turn over to my partner, Chaz Billington, who's going to speak uh, about uh, accommodations and some of the wage and hour implications of the ETS. Thanks, Dan. So as Dan alluded to, we have gotten a number of questions regarding the possibility and the obligation to provide accommodations uh, under the ETS. And we've dealt with this to some degree a little bit already throughout the pandemic, accommodation requests that came for mask wearing or screening and things like that. And I'm here to tell you that here, accommodations will absolutely be provided and are permitted under the ETS. And you're going to see the same ones you saw before, largely Title VII and ADA. So Title VII, sincerely held religious beliefs in the ADA, disability-related accommodation requests. And so accommodations are absolutely available, just like Dan said. Um, simply put, employees who are not vaccinated um, who, and who require a change to a term or condition of their employment or policy here, testing or vaccination, based on a bona fide medical or religious reason, are entitled to an accommodation. They're not guaranteed an accommodation, mind you, just like in any other framework, but they're entitled to request one, and that sets off the employer's obligation to consider it. Um, the ETS largely does not change that general framework um, under the ADA and Title VII. And under the ETS, you'll see that there, are, there is a requirement for a policy related to the, the specifics of testing and vaccination. If you go to the, the OSHA's landing page for the ETS, uh, there are some sample policies there. And those policies contain model operant language relative to accommodations, essentially how they're requested, to whom they are submitted, et cetera. And what's an accommodation look like here? It looks like the way it always did. An employee asks for an accommodation for a vaccination or, or testing because he or she cannot be vaccinated or tested because of either A, a medical condition, or B, a sincerely held religious belief. As we frequently say in this context, there is no, quote, magic language to spark an accommodation. You don't have to say accommodation. Just an indication that the employee needs a change to the workplace or a workplace policy because of a medical condition or a religious reason. That's it. That sparks the accommodation process off. I can tell you in dealing with these accommodation requests on the, on the executive order side, you're going to need a process here. You need an internal protocol or procedure that covers who gets these requests, what are the relevant factors and considerations that you're going to analyze when looking at these particular requests, what was the decision you made? What were the underlying assumptions or data? You want to have a form in place for vetting these. How do, how do folks request the accommodation? A form that gives you sufficient information to make your determination. What other information might you, might you need? Might you need a job description? Might you need information from a manager in a way that's confidential? Those are all considerations you should be having in your head when you put this together. And of course, Outside of forms, you want a communication strategy. How is it going to be communicated? Who's going to communicate? What's going to be communicated? Um, and again, as Bob alluded to, sure, there is a stay in place here, but these are still relevant considerations because we don't know the ultimate um, fate of the ETS. And anecdotally, from having dealt again with these in the employee and the executive order context, our guess is you will see a surge in accommodation requests, and we're typically seeing an outsized. Uh, number of religious accommodation requests. In fact, there are whole websites devoted uh, to teach employees how to get a religious accommodation. And so here you're really going to want to brush up on the framework for religious accommodations because my guess is you'll see more of those. And that is not something that folks are doing day in and day out. Religious accommodation requests up until this point were probably in the far minority. Most folks maybe go through their entire career with only having dealt with a few of them. So brush up on that legal framework. 
Um, it's similar to the ADA, but not exactly the same in the religious context. And again, have a policy, you know, have your forms in place, be ready for when these accommodation requests come in. And keep in mind as well that you may get what we're calling, or I maybe I'm calling, stacked accommodations. So you may get multiple requests. An employee can't be vaccinated and can't wear a mask or already had some sort of accommodation relative to mask wearing. You may get somebody say that they can't get tested and they can't wear a mask because of say a religious belief or a medical reason. Each of those should be considered on their own merits. They should be considered based on the relevant facts and circumstances. Um, again, when you have an accommodation process here, much as is the case normally, no red light, green light policies. Each of these accommodation requests should be viewed as a whole based on again, the individual facts and circumstances. Let me jump here to wage and hour considerations. Dan alluded to some of this as well. One of the biggest lingering questions is, um, the unknown costs associated with the, with the ETS, we're, and we're getting specifically calls here in a, in a number of different ways. Um, we talked a little bit about time off for vaccination, so I won't belabor that point, but the, the really the question here is whether testing and vaccination related activities are quote, hours worked, that must, hours worked rather, that must be compensated under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And so we've been debating this sort of concept for a while, and that's in the screening process. So folks had to come in and get temperature screened, and there was a debate, and an ongoing debate, as a matter of fact, as to whether that time spent screening could necessarily be considered hours work, particularly if it's done before or after the shift. And so we don't know the answer to that question yet, but there are lawsuits in the works, and we do have our various um, theories on the process. So. When we talk about the ETS specifically here, we're gonna focus in on compensability of, of really testing time. And that takes place in a probably a variety of different ways. That's gonna be before and after work. So your preliminary and post-liminary during work and on your off days. We know that the ETS does not require you to pay for the costs associated with testing the kits themselves. Although as Dan mentioned, you may wanna to refer to state law on that point. There may be relevant state laws that may require some form of compensation relative to the testing. OSHA is not the ultimate authority on that matter. Um, but whether you pay for the cost of the kits themselves or not, the issue is time spent actually testing. Is that compensable? So the easiest one is if testing place, takes place after the start of work during the workday, it's almost assuredly compensable time. So employee clocks in at 8, 8.05, they get tested. Probably not a real question of whether that's compensable. But what if it's preliminary or post-liminary? What if an employee before coming in has to be tested or potentially when they leave? A relevant analog here would be security screens and things like that. Whether that time is compensable? Well, unfortunately, that remains an open question. Um, the DLL does suggest that some time spent before or after could be compensable time. And it really turns on whether um, that preliminary, post-preliminary work here, the testing, um, specifically is integral or indispensable to the work those folks are doing. Again, much like bag screening cases that we've seen in the past, the DOL notes a couple of specific examples where, where outside of work testing may be compensable. And it gives an example of potentially a nurse uh, who may be dealing with immunocompromised or medically fragile individuals. Is that testing, is that screening integral and indispensable? The DOL says, yeah, it might be. It also makes the example of a grocery store worker who may be working public facing with clients and customers day in and day out. Again, that screening and testing in that instance may be compensable. Keep in mind though that no, irrespective of what OSHA says about compensable time, it's going to fall to the FLSA and it's gonna to fall to relevant state law. And while there are arguments that such pre and post work may not be compensable, 
Um, the question has not been settled here specifically. And any analysis you do should absolutely include a review of the idiosyncrasies of your own workplace to determine whether those activities may or may not be compensable. And I would say that a step further, you should be doing this analysis relative to both federal law and any jurisdiction in which you work. And so I'm sorry for you folks who are multi-state employers, but the, the determination is not as easy as just saying, well, under the federal law, we don't think this time is, you know, we don't think this time is compensable. That may not be the case. And it may not be the case from location to location, depending on what you're doing. What about testing outside of work? What if somebody goes and does it on their day off? What if somebody does it on a Saturday and they don't normally work a Saturday? Again, an unsettled question. Under federal law, there's absolutely an argument that that time is not compensable time. The test here being whether the testing or vaccination they're doing in the off is for the purpose of serving the employer's business. Again, no clear answer. Whether OSHA says you know, yes or no, again, irrespective of the point, it's gonna fall to relevant state law and ultimately the courts who are tasked with interpreting the FLSA. And so until we get some actual line of sight from courts um, or some DOL enforcement actions, we won't have a great argument one way or the other here. So there's a couple different ways you can go with respect to the necessary wage and hour risks here. Look, if you're risk averse and you wanna avoid the possibility of a DOL investigation or a lawsuit, you could elect to pay for the time spent in vaccination, testing, or screening, right? You could load that into the workday to make sure that there's no question when it's happening. You could also require those individuals who may be testing before or after work or on their off days to submit um, specific data with respect to the exact time it might take. Um, so you have a very good handle on how much time is being spent. Um, but keep in mind that if you go with the option here and think, okay, I, I just think federal law is gonna govern here and, and we don't think this is compensable time or we've undertaken the analysis, keep in mind that these are matters of first impression and it will be matters of first impression in many jurisdictions as this thing continues to go. So, you know, be careful with what you do here. Again, an, an analysis that takes into account relevant local jurisdictions and federal law is, is very much recommended. And with that, I am gonna flip it to our next presenter. Thanks, Chaz. This is Ben Shepler again. Uh, everybody take a breath. We've been through a lot already. Uh, the good news is that we have gone through, I think, most of the tricky substantive portions of the ETS. There are, however, four or five what I would call miscellaneous provisions in there as well um, that we want to make sure that we are in compliance with so that we don't get dinged inadvertently for something that, that we could have pretty easily taken care of. So I'm going to go through those miscellaneous provisions right now. First up is what's known as medical removal, and this is something you'll be familiar with. Uh, we've been doing it for the last year and a half, unfortunately, uh, and that is basically requiring your employees to let you know if they have tested positive or been diagnosed with COVID-19. And so you want to have in your, in your COVID-19 ETS policy the direction to the employees to let you know. Uh, of note, this applies to both vaccinated and unvaccinated employees. Also of note, there is no requirement for you, the employer, to conduct any type of contact tracing, so that's nice. Uh, once you have, have been informed that the employee tested positive or was diagnosed, employee needs to be removed from the workforce and must uh, remain removed until they meet one of three criteria. Um, the first is what I will call the false positive criteria. So in other words, if the employee 
took a PCR test and tested positive, and then they double-checked it by taking what, I, what I've typically seen called a PCR test, but what OSHA calls an NAAT test, uh, and that second test comes back negative, then they can return to work because it's assumed that the PCR test uh, was a false positive. If that doesn't apply, then the employee needs to remain out until they meet the CDC guidelines to return to work or until the healthcare provider gives them a return to work notice. And the CDC guidelines have changed a number of times, but they've been consistent for um, a while now, so I don't anticipate them changing. And those guidelines are, generally speaking, you can return uh, after 10 days if you are asymptomatic. And if you are symptomatic, then you can return after 10 days, assuming that at least 24 hours have passed with no fever, without fever-reducing medication, and other symptoms are improving, um, with the exception of things like loss of taste or smell that, that as we know, can, can persist for a while. Importantly, if an employee is removed because they've tested positive, you, the employer, are not required under the ETS to provide paid time off. Uh, there may be other state, local, CBA, you know, a whole host of other obligations, but under the ETS itself, there is no obligation to provide paid leave. One last thing, you can also require the employee to work remotely uh, if it's consistent with his or her job duties and they are physically able to do so. Next miscellaneous category is information requirements. Uh, before I jump into those, I will note in a small win for employers, there is no formal training, no formal training requirement under the ETS, um, which is pretty uncommon. OSHA usually requires training in a lot of different areas. So there's no formal training here. Instead, there are a number of different documents you need to provide your employees. First of those is information related to the ETS itself and your related policies. And within the ETS, there's a list of what those, of what those items are. And OSHA has also provided on their website sample policy forms. Uh, I would urge you to start there. I wouldn't use it whole cloth, but it definitely is a good base uh, to build from, and it's something that you know, internally we are doing as well, taking a look at it, seeing you know, what we can add and subtract, but it's definitely a good place to start. Additional information. Uh, first, you need to inform employees about anti-retaliation provisions, anti-discrimination provisions under OSHA, uh, and then you also need to provide them with information about uh, certain statutes that provide for criminal prosecution if they, the employee, knowingly supply false statements or documentation. And this gets back to the idea of fraud and that um, you know, the employer is not expected to be the fraud police here. OSHA has stated that they're hoping that by requiring employers to tell employees that they really need to tell the truth or they could literally go to jail, um, that the employees will, in fact, tell the truth. Of note there, um, in some of the guidance, it indicates that you need to provide not just a general statement, but the actual statutory language on criminal penalties. And if you look on OSHA's website, they have provided a, a nice little one-page handout um, that provides that information that I think you can use whole cloth. Finally, there is a document they want you to provide, and it's on the CDC's website entitled, Key Things to Know About COVID-19 Vaccines. 
So include that in your informational documents as well. In terms of how you provide this information, there's no hard and fast rule. Um, you know, paper copies are fine, emails fine, you know, however you typically would distribute information. Um, theoretically, even some of it could be verbal. I would recommend, though, that you have everything in writing. Um, I don't think this, this rises to the level necessarily of something where you need to have, you know, an employee sign a verification of, of you know, an acknowledgement of I received all this information. If you can do that easily in your systems, great. Um, but I think as long as you have, you know, it, it, everything in writing and you can show OSHA, here are the steps we went through to disseminate the information, then you should be in good shape. Next, under miscellaneous, are reporting requirements. Uh, and these will be familiar to those of you that, particularly manufacturing sector, um, OSHA already has in place reporting requirements for serious injuries and fatalities that are work-related. Uh, and under those rules, you have to report a fatality within eight hours of learning about it, and you have to report an inpatient hospitalization within 24 hours of learning about it. And that remains the same here. The only difference is normally there's a cutoff point, and so if it's if the employee um, there's a fatality that's more than 30 days after the accident at work uh, or a hospitalization more than 24 hours after, you don't have to report it. But under the ETS, you do. So in other words, once you learn or determine that an employee has been hospitalized or there's been a fatality due to um, COVID that was contracted at work, you need to report within either eight hours for the fatality or 24 hours for the hospitalization. Key question here, though, and this is something that we've been struggling with from the very outset, is how do you determine whether you know, a COVID-19 infection is work-related? Um, and interestingly, if you look at some of the, the legal challenges that are coming forth, that's one of the arguments that people are making is that you know, it's so prevalent in society that how do you know, you know it's not unique to work? How do you determine that it's work-related? And the answer is, and this is kind of, as you might expect, not not black and white, um, but it, it's what OSHA says is you should report it if it's more likely than not. Um, and what that means, practically speaking, is, for example, you know, were employees working together on a production line and multiple employees got COVID at the same time? You know, contrast that with a situation where you know employees don't work next to each other and just you've got one employee and no others that they've interacted with have come down with COVID. In that case, I think you're safe not to report. Um, so really, it's, it's, you know, make a good faith inquiry into um, the case, and if there's not evidence that makes you think it was work-related, then you don't need to report. But on the other hand, if, you know, typically the big one is, again, if you've got a cluster, um, then you probably do need to report. Finally, in miscellaneous, uh, is the availability of records. We talked earlier, Dan did and I did, about the need to maintain certain records of vaccinations and testing. And part of that is because you also have obligations to provide that information to certain folks. Uh, if a current or former employee or their representative requests copies of their vaccine information or their testing information, you have to provide them that information by the next business day. Additionally, and this was kind of unexpected, but I'll explain why in a minute. Um, 
If an employee or the representative requests the aggregate number of fully vaccinated employees at a workplace, along with the total number of employees at that workplace, you again need to provide that information within by the next business day. Um, this was somewhat unexpected, but OSHA explains that they think it's necessary and helpful to essentially allow employees to monitor their safety and employee compliance with OSHA recognizing that they themselves are not going to be able to, to monitor everybody or even close to everybody. Finally, OSHA can make records requests as well. They can request a copy of your written ETS policy and they can request that same aggregate vaccine data. And if they do that, you need to provide it within four business hours, so tight time frame there. And then additionally, they can request copies of all other records that must be maintained under the ETS. And that, so for example, that would be the specific vaccination information, specific testing information for one or multiple people. You need to provide that by the end of the next business day. So that is it in terms of miscellaneous information. Uh, I am now going to turn it over to my colleague, Elizabeth Howard, who is going to talk about uh, a tangentially related issue, but is one that we've gotten questions about and is one that we think will become even more important with the vaccine mandate. Thanks, Ben. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Elizabeth, and I'm an associate in our employee benefits group. And like Ben said, I want to quickly discuss a topic that is not directly covered by the new ETS, but is tangentially related um, based on what we now know. So we know that employers for months now have been looking at different ways to incentivize vaccinations in their workforce. And this new rule potentially exacerbates that problem for employers because as Dan discussed, the cost and burden of testing or administering a testing regime um, is potentially high. And as a result, employers may look at other ways to incentivize vaccination. And one of the tactics we have seen and discussed with clients even before this new rule is implementing a vaccine surcharge in the employer's medical plan. So in other words, if an employee is not vaccinated, that employee will have to pay more in monthly premiums for medical coverage than an employee who is vaccinated. And you may recall this in the back of your mind, it made national news when Delta Airlines announced they were doing this back in August. That was kind of the impetus for this idea and this discussion. And since Delta's announcement, we've received additional guidance on how the tri-agencies, departments of labor, treasury, and health and human service, services view this type of surcharge and regulate this type of surcharge um, there are a lot of requirements applicable to a vaccine surcharge. I'm going to discuss some of the more relevant or problematic ones today, but I do want to say that when you get your health plan involved, things get tricky. That's the technical legal term, tricky. And due to regulatory risks, you really want to make sure that you consider your design and make sure you're complying with all applicable laws before implementing this type of surcharge. So a vaccine surcharge is actually considered to be a wellness plan um, in the same way that you may have um, different things to your medical plan right now to encourage employees to take better care of their health. And to get a little more specific, it is actually regulated as what is called a health contingent activity only wellness plan. And as a result, it is regulated in the same way as say a wellness plan that provides a reward for completing a diet or exercise program. So 
even though it's just a potential penalty for people who are not vaccinated, it's regulated in the same way as if you were to say, if you complete this exercise program, we will give you money off on your medical premiums. So as a starting point, this type of wellness plan must comply with the HIPAA wellness regulations applicable to health contingent activity only wellness plans. This means that it's under the HIPAA wellness regulations must meet a, a several requirements, but I wanna specifically focus on two of them. The first requirement is that the size of the penalty cannot exceed 30% of the cost of coverage. And this 30% is calculated across all non-tobacco wellness plan incentives. In other words, if you put a surcharge in place, you have to make sure that you are not charging too much or else you may violate the HIPAA wellness regulations. And so if your cost of coverage is not particularly high or if you already have other wellness incentives in place, that means that the dollar amount um, that you charge may not be enough to really move the needle. And anecdotally, the Delta Airlines surcharge was announced as $200 a month. And since this new guidance came out from the agencies that this cap would apply, there are, are people who believe that the $200 a month surcharge would be too high, that Delta perhaps took a different position. The second requirement I wanna to touch on under the HIPAA wellness regulations is that if you put this type of surcharge in place, you must offer a reasonable alternative standard or waive the surcharge for any individual for whom the vaccine would be medically inadvisable or unreasonable due to a medical condition. And either in other words, if someone comes to you and says, my doctor says I can't get the vaccine, you need to either waive the penalty for that person or provide them with another way to avoid the penalty and that other way cannot be unduly burdensome. Uh, in addition to the HIPAA wellness regulations, a vaccine surcharge needs to comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Genetic Information Non-Disclosure Act, or GINA, which both also have specific requirements applicable to wellness programs. As I just explained, if someone says that it is medically inadvisable to get vaccinated, you have to waive the penalty or provide another option to avoid the penalty. However, to avoid issues under the ADA and GINA wellness regulations, we advise that you keep this inquiry very limited. In fact, the safest course is just to have a doctor sign a simple standard form and not request any additional reasons or documentation as to why the person cannot get vaccinated. So Chaz talked about the reasonable accommodation um, for, for employment purposes or the ETS purposes, but when you're doing this through your health plan, so if you're doing it for a surcharge purpose, the process is different. And when the health plan is involved, you wanna keep that inquiry as generic and limited as possible to avoid other compliance issues. The last thing I wanna to touch on is that if you put a surcharge um, in your health plan and you're doing this through your health plan, that means that this information is subject to HIPAA, which means that you wanna make sure that any information collected this way that would be considered protected health information or PHI is appropriately um, protected in, you know, as required by HIPAA. And that means that you can't maybe have one standard process where someone's coming in and giving all information um, to the employer for purposes of both the ETS and the surcharge. You may have to have a separate process in place for your group health plan to make sure that you are treating that PHI appropriately. This is just a very high level of some of the laws applicable to vaccine surcharges. 
the biggest point to emphasize is that there are a lot of compliance minefields when it comes to vaccine surcharges, and you want to make sure that you think through those and walk through those issues before you actually implement one. And with that, I will turn it over to Bob to discuss effective dates and legal challenges. Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, so, um, we've heard a lot about what has to be done. Um, let's look a little bit at how uh, all of this unfolds. Um, so, the effective date of the ETS is November 5th, 2021, last Friday. Um, the ETS gives employers 30 days, which would run through December 5th, 2021, to comply with all of the ETS's provisions except for the unvaccinated worker testing requirements. The testing requirements take effect 60 days from the effective date of the ETS, which would be January 4th, 2022. So the policies, the information exchange, the you know the the obtaining of, of vaccination st statuses, et cetera, et cetera. You got 30 days. December 5th is the day that you want to keep in the forefront of of your mind. Now, um, as I mentioned um, at the outset uh, of this webinar. Um, over the weekend, the Fifth Circuit halted the enforcement of the ETS. This happened on Saturday, uh, and the Fifth Circuit did so, claiming that uh, the suit raises, quote, grave statutory and constitutional issues, end quote. So what now? Um, so first of all, um, I got to chuckle a little bit of the language that the court used it was likely a, a clever play on words since the standard for issuance of an ETS is that the employees are subject to grave danger from exposure um, and also that the ETS is necessary to protect employees from that danger. You know, channeling Jack Nicholson here. Is danger? Is grave danger? Is there another kind? Well, grave danger is the standard here. Um, the Biden administration was, was well aware of that standard when they drafted the ETS uh, and clearly wrote it anticipating that challenges would be filed. Um, just as an aside, OSHA rules can be challenged once they're published in the Federal Register, which happened again last Friday the 5th. By the end of the day Friday, 26 states and a handful of private entities as well had already filed suits to challenge the ETS. So. Just as a quick rundown, uh, a coalition of 11 states filed suit in the Eighth Circuit. Five states were behind the suit filed in the Fifth Circuit. And that includes Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Utah, and also some private entities were involved as well. Florida, Alabama, and Georgia together filed suit in the Eleventh Circuit. Uh, closer to home, a group of seven states, including Ohio, filed suit in the Sixth Circuit, and there's been a suit filed by two private entities in Wisconsin that was also filed in the Seventh Circuit. Um, by and large, um, these suits allege that the power to compel vaccinations rests not with the federal government, but only with the states. That's sort of the constitutional argument. Um, they also argue that OSHA's ETS goes beyond workplace safety and into public health policy, which again they contend exceeds OSHA's statutory authority. So the, the Fifth Circuit paused enforcement of the ETS, but again, 
that that that's not final ruling. So the court ordered the parties to submit additional briefing regarding the validity of the ETS. And in fact, the government's brief is due by five o'clock today, and the challenger's brief is due by five o'clock tomorrow. You know, we can I, I think we can expect some further action by the court very soon thereafter, given the short time frames that they've allowed for the briefing itself. Um, interesting, lo interestingly, um, other courts where suits are pending uh, may issue companion or even contrary rulings while we're waiting for this to play out in the Fifth Circuit, and, and then that's going to require sort of a complex process to sort it all out. And, um, the process for sorting it out will start with Believe it or not, a lottery that will be held um, by the um, uh, by a multi-district litigation panel um, to determine which circuit court then will host the litigation. Um, ultimately, this seems very likely to end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. Timing is unclear, frankly, how all this plays out, given the immediacy with which this is supposed to take effect and the limited duration that it's supposed to take, you know, remain in effect. You know, it'll be very interesting to to, to watch carefully how that plays, and we haven't said this specifically already, um, the, the, the emergency, the ETS itself um, is only uh, in place for six months, and the, an, an emergency standard can only take uh, remain in place for six months, after which it has to be replaced with a permanent standard, which has to go through the comment rulemaking process, which is supposed to be ongoing now that the ETS is in place. So we'll see how that, how that um, plays out. Um, so while we wait for this to sort itself out, um, frankly, and as we indicated earlier, the best practice here really is um, for employers to prepare to implement the ETS on its appointed schedule, since there's really not much time to gear up and there's a fair amount to do here. Um, if the stay does remain in place, obviously, before you know, up to the December 5th current, you know, first deadline, so to speak, um, employers certainly can delay implementation of the required measures if that's the case. Of course, they don't have to, um, and employers are generally free to implement measures that they feel are appropriate for their workplaces, though, of course, uh, in, in each case, you should stay abreast of any state or local law uh, or restrictions that might impact the ability to do some of the things that you might otherwise want to do. So that's just a quick update on the status and, and implementation. So um, I'm going to throw this back over to my colleagues now, Robin Amicon and Liam Gruz who, as I promised, are going to discuss the CMS rule for healthcare entities uh, before we end up by answering as many of your questions as time allows. Robin? Thanks, Bob. This is Robin Amicon. I'm a healthcare attorney at Boris, and I'm just going to briefly touch upon the CMS emergency regulations that also came out on the same date that require employees of Medicare and Medicaid participating healthcare facilities to be vaccinated for COVID-19. This mandate is more stringent than the OSHA ETS. Um, there's no testing option, and um, it isn't dependent on the number of employees. So first, who does it apply to? It applies only to Medicare and Medicaid certified provider and supplier types that have federal conditions or requirements of participation. CMS did provide a list of the provider and supplier types that are covered. Um, it includes hospitals, long-term care facilities, ICFs, home health agencies, hospices, PACE programs for the elderly, critical access hospitals, comprehensive outpatient rehab facilities, um, clinics such as rehab agencies and public health agencies uh, that are providers of outpatient physical 
therapy and speech, speech language physical therapy, um, psychiatric residential treatment facilities, community mental health centers, home infusion therapy suppliers, oral health clinics, um, and federally qualified health centers and end-stage renal disease facilities. Um, the requirements do not apply to other healthcare entities that are not regulated by CMS, some, such as physician offices, um, assisted living providers, group homes, and providers of home and community-based services, um, like IDD DD providers that are not regulated by CMS. Um, as far as applying it to staff, um, the vaccine requirements, you know, has a very broad application to really the majority of staff working at these provider types, regardless of clinical responsibility or patient contact. It includes all current staff, um, as well as any new staff who provide any care, treatment, or other services for the provider and or its patients, and or interacts or potentially interacts with staff, patients, residents, clients, or PACE program participants. Um, CMS did provide some examples um, as to who this applies to, and it includes facility employees, including housekeeping and food services, licensed practitioners, students, trainees, volunteers, administrative staff, uh, facility leadership, fiduciary board members. And it also includes um, anyone who provides care, treatment, or other services to the facility and or its patients under contract or other arrangement. It does not apply to individuals. Um, it's pretty limited to those that do not have any direct contact with patients and staff. Um, such as fully remote or payroll services that are not subject, you know, they're not subject to this. Um, it will apply though to remote staff if they even occasionally interact with staff, patients, residents, or clients. As far as implementation phases, it's the same as the OSHA ETS. There are two. Phase one requires that providers establish a policy to ensure that all staff have received the first dose of a two-dose COVID vaccine or one-dose COVID vaccine like Johnson & Johnson by December 5th. For phase two, all eligible staff must have received the necessary shots to be fully vaccinated, which is either two doses of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine or one dose of Johnson & Johnson, and that has to be done by January 4th. The regulation also provides for exemptions based on religious, um, like recognized medical conditions or religious beliefs, observances or practices, so providers will have to develop um, a process or plan for permitting these exemptions if they haven't already. Um, as far as compliance, CMS said they will, um, uh, will enforce this through their normal survey process. CMS will be issuing interpretive guidelines and that will include the more specific survey procedures, so watch out for that. So we've got all these rules, you know, we've got the CMS mandate, um, the OSHA healthcare ETS from June, and um, this latest OSHA ETS mandate. So how do they all work together? So we know the CMS rule applies to Medicare and Medicaid provider types that have conditions or requirements of participation. So that, that's fairly straightforward. If that doesn't apply, then the OSHA ETS um, vaccine mandate for businesses with 100 or more employees may apply. However, if a provider is not covered by the CMS rule, but is covered by the June um, OSHA ETS for healthcare providers, the provider does not have to comply with this OSHA vaccine ETS. So that gets a little tricky. But to summarize, um, for long-term care and DD providers, for example, SNFs, um, certified home health agencies, hospices, and ICF providers we know are covered by the CMS mandate. 
um, assisted living communities, um, they would have been covered by the June OSHA ETS, so they don't have to comply with this OSHA vaccine ETS. For ID and DD waiver providers, you're not covered by the CMS mandate, but otherwise it depends on whether you were covered by the OSHA healthcare ETS from June, and if not, you may be covered by this OSHA vaccine ETS if you have 100 or more employees. And for um, adult day and employment service providers, that's where it gets a little tricky. You may need to comply with a CMS rule if you serve ICF residents, like under a contract or other arrangement. <clears throat> and, um, you know, OSIC really expects these combinations of incentives to um, vaccination will be, you know, leave, it will leave few healthcare workers within the scope of the healthcare ETS not being vaccinated. OSHA also does not want any coverage gaps. So if employers with 100 plus employees had some employers covered by the healthcare to ETS, they will also need to determine if some of the other employees are covered by the OSHA vaccine ETS. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to um, Liam Gross. Great, thank you, Robin. So I mm -hmm. stand between you all and answers to your questions. So I'm going to make this quick. Um, I've got two key issues I want to touch on. They're going to be specific to um, the behavioral health provider community and entities that have uh, multiple healthcare settings. And in walking through this, I will answer a couple of the questions that have been raised today. So as Robin indicated, the CMS rule applies to certain provider types. And um, those most likely relevant to the behavioral health provider community are hospitals. FQHCs, and community mental health centers. So community mental health centers, or CMHCs, um, are a specific Medicare provider type. These are entities authorized to provide partial hospitalization under Medicare Part B, and they're required to comply with the CMHC Medicare COPs, and there are, on, there are only 129 of these in the country. We're aware, for the purposes of certain SAMHSA grants recently, uh, OMAS has recognized certain providers as a CMHC in accordance with the applicable section of the Public Health Service Act. Uh, what we will say here is that unless the entity is enrolled in Medicare as a CMHC and is required to comply with the CMHC Medicare COPs, the entity is not a CMHC for purposes of having to comply with the CMS vaccine mandate. So um, in addition to that, for healthcare providers, we need to consider the applicability of the OSHA healthcare ETS from June and the, uh, the new OSHA vaccine and testing ETS. That's the, uh, the subject of our discussion today. So, what about providers with multiple healthcare settings? Uh, this brings us to the intersection, as Robin briefly mentioned, of uh, the OSHA testing and vaccine ETS and the OSHA healthcare ETS from June of this year. We're aware of a number of situations in which one setting currently would be required to comply with the OSHA healthcare ETS, uh, but there are other settings at the same provider that are exempt. So for example, think of a provider with both a congregate care setting and an outpatient facility. Here, we're gonna assume that the outpatient setting is exempt from the June healthcare ETS 
because all non-employees are being screened for COVID symptoms prior to entry and individuals with suspected or confirmed COVID are not permitted to enter. So we need to analyze each setting, but we're gonna first begin with the OSHA testing and vaccine uh, ETS 100 employee threshold. So for, uh, for fewer than 100 employees, it's easy. There's no change in the analysis. But if there are 100 or more employees uh, of the provider, the outpatient setting must now comply with the OSHA uh, testing, testing and vaccine uh, rule, but the congregate care setting would still remain subject to the June healthcare ETS, and as a result, then it would be exempt from the OSHA testing and vaccine rule. And I, I'm sure that there, you have some detailed questions here. There are a number of various uh, permutations and combinations that we can't address on this webinar, but feel free to reach out to us uh, with any specific questions that you have and that we're not able to get to here in the next 15 minutes or so. And with that, I will turn it to um, Sarah to facilitate the uh, Q&A session. Thank you, Liam, and thank you to all of our um, presenters today. We did get a number of questions that came in. Um, if you do have questions, uh, we welcome you to put them into the Q&A widget on your screen. Um, these questions will not be seen by other attendees. Um, so this first one question that came in, what are the implications for employers related to visitors? We're supposed to vaccinate and or test mask our own employees, but what about visitors? Can they remain maskless and unvaccinated if we want them to? Uh, this is Bob. I'll take first crack at this one, um, Sarah. I, I, the short answer is the ETS doesn't address or affect visitors. Uh, it addresses what employers have to do with employees. Um, and so whatever your policies are with respect to visitors are not directly implicated by the ETS. Um, so, you know, you still look at the same considerations you had prior to the ETS for how you want to manage visitors and customers in your workplace. Thanks, Bob. This next question we have for Ben. Um, are employers required to accept the employee's attestation in lieu of the card or healthcare record? Thanks, Sarah. So the answer is yes, um, as long as the signed attestation contains all of the required information. And if you look um, on the OSHA FAQs or if you look on their sample policy, it lays out specifically the information that has to be in there. And um, if that's included in the statement and signed, then that's essentially the employee stating under oath, I was vaccinated, but I don't have access to or have lost that information, in which case you would need to accept it. Thanks, Ben. Um, then next question has come in for Dan. Um, can the employer specify the day of the week to be tested, say every Wednesday, since it has to be on the seventh day? That, that's a, um, a great question, so thank you to whoever ever submitted it. Um, I, yes, um, and I, I think there's a lot of re common sense reasons that an employer would want to stagger um, testing so that, you know, we, do, we wouldn't want Monday to be the day everybody has to turn in their test. Um, you, know, you know, one, there's a, there's a record-keeping element to it. 
if you're managing multiple locations, you, you might have the same people managing testing at different different times. So um, it's got to be you know every seven days, but it doesn't have to be the same day uh, for everybody. So staggering that you know might help uh, with some of the logistical issues associated with um, with getting everyone tested and, and records of those tests each week. Thank you. Um, this next question we have, is there any guidance about disciplinary action employers can take against employees who elect not to comply with the standard? Uh, and this one is for Bob. Uh, yeah. Well, the, an the direct answer to the question is no. There's no specific guidance provided as to what disciplinary action can or should be taken. Um, employers are required to comply with the standard, and if the employer fails to comply with the standard, uh, then they're subject to fines and other enforcement mechanisms by OSHA. Um, so we would certainly recommend that employers consider that issue very carefully as part of their upfront policy uh, with regard to how they're going to discipline people. But then, you know, again, like in any case, you want to make sure you're consistent, or at least consistent as to the specific circumstances of, of the individual case, uh, and try to maintain you know, some degree of, of, of reasonableness as to how you're going to deal with it, but um, there, there's no specific guidance provided in the ETS. Thanks, Bob. Um, this next question is for Ben. Um, are we able to allow the employees to upload their own documentation for review by HR? Thanks, Sarah. Uh, the answer to that is yes, um, and a number of, of large government contractors have already implemented systems like that in connection with the executive order. So you can set up a portal, but you know the key is making sure that it's secure, uh, and have the employee upload uh, supporting documentation and, and use that as your system. Thank you. This next question is for Dan. Um, what is the reason for the employees who have been diagnosed within the past 90 days that they wouldn't be tested? Does it have to do with the antibodies or something else? Um, thanks, that's another good one. They, the, um, the two types of tests that I mentioned, the PCR test and the antigen test, neither of them are looking for antibodies, which are uh, uh, molecules created by the immune system that would indicate that the person has some built up immunity to the virus. Uh, the, the antigen and PCR testing is, is actually looking for specific pieces of the COVID-19 virus and, and pieces that are unique to the COVID-19 virus so as to distinguish it from other viruses. And the reason that um, the, the employers are excused from testing for 90 days after a positive test is that even after someone has cleared an infection and has no, um, uh, they're no longer uh, sick with COVID-19, they're no longer able to infect others, they're still likely to have bits and pieces of the virus still in their system and, you know, and could test positive. So testing during that 90-day period after a positive test would lead to what OSHA considered to be an unreasonably high false positive rate. So that 90-day that period was um, uh, is designed to avoid false positives of people that have, have recovered from uh, COVID-19, but still have pieces of the virus in their system. Thank you. This next question came in for Liam, um, and this is regarding the mandatory testing. 
for the CMS rule, can providers administer tests in lieu of vaccine? Thanks, Sarah, for that question. That's one of the key differences between the CMS rule and the OSHA rule. The CMS rule um, does not permit providers to administer tests in lieu of vaccines. They are required under the CMS rule. Thanks, Liam. This next question is for Robin. Um, does the stay blocking the ETS also block CMS mandatory vaccinations or just block OSHA? Uh, thanks. The block is only to this OSHA ETS vaccine mandate, not the CMS uh, rule that, that, that I discussed. Thank you. Uh, this next question mm -hmm. we have is for Bob. Um, can you speak to if state or local government organizations are covered, particularly in Ohio um, or other states that do not have an OSHA-monitored state plan? Sure, Sarah. Um, for states that do not have a, if they're, they're, they just are subject to OSHA, they don't have a, a, an approved state plan, they are not subject to the ETS. They are exempt by law from OSHA, uh, state, and, state and local governments are. so. State and local government employers in states like Ohio, where there is no um, state plan, are not subject to the ETS. Thank you, Bob. Ben, this next question is for you. Um, can the HR department share who is vaccinated and who is not with managers? Um, this is regarding uh, fear of a HIPAA violation. Thanks. That's a great question and a common one. Um, the, the answer is that an employee's vaccination status should be treated as confidential health information. Um, for most employers, it's not going to have HIPAA implications, but it will have ADA implications. And as a practical matter, that means it should be kept secure and only provided on a need-to-know basis. Um, and where that could arise is if, um, as you know, under the ETS, if employees are not vaccinated, in addition to testing, they also have to wear masks. And so in terms of uh, in determining whether employees are in compliance, there may be situations where we want supervisors and managers to have that information, but it should be kept uh, on a, on a need-to-know basis and circulated as, as, in as limited a fashion as possible. Thank you. This next question we have is for Robin. Um, is the CMS mandate on hold also, or is it just OSHA? Oh, yeah, I think that was asked in the, sort of in the prior question you presented to me. It's the CMS mandate, it, it has not been blocked. It's just the OSHA vaccine ETS. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, this next question we have is for Bob. Um, do, if you have separate employers with separate FEIN, do you have to combine all the employees to count towards the 100 employee level? So, um, semi-hoping we'd get through this without having to answer that question because we don't know the answer yet, to be perfectly candid. The OSHA didn't really address this question in its guidance. Um, the um, uh, not in, or in the FAQs that, that came along with it. Um, it they, talk, they talk about the coverage is corporate-wide or firm-wide um, when you're making the count. Um, so I think the best answer to that question currently, without further guidance from the government, 
is is to apply sort of a classic um, single employer or control analysis to the situation and identify whether um, in, any, in any individual case there is common, not just ownership, but common control of HR functions and specifically safety and health functions um, to determine whether they would uh, aggregate those particular entities to get to 100. Um, it's going to be kind of fact specific and until we get greater guidance from OSHA on that particular question, we're flying blind just a little bit, but we know that in prior, um, in prior situations, comparable situations where they've tried to address um, these kinds of issues, they've looked to that kind of um, um, uh, analysis to determine whether we're going to count them. And, and let's face it, moreover, you know, they're, they're going to want to lean toward coverage if there's an option to lean toward coverage, so I think you want to be careful about that. Thanks, Bob. Um, this next question we have is for Ben. Um, please explain further how employers no longer need to contact, uh, conduct contact tracing. Thanks, Sarah, and thank you ever asked that question because it, I maybe was not clear enough. To clarify, to the extent you currently have a process in place to conduct contact tracing, you should absolutely continue to do that. However, the ETS itself does not impose any additional or specific contact tracing obligations on you, the employer. Thanks, Ben. Um, Bob, this next question we have is for you. Um, this is from a federal contractor who is also commercial contracts with private companies. Um, do the more stringent requirements of the EO for federal contractors cover us for compliance to OSHA rule? Yes, very, very simply. Um, if you're covered by the federal contractor guidance that requires the vac vaccination, um, then the um, ETS does not apply. Um, but it, be careful. I mean, it, 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 it won't apply to the workplaces where the contractor rule applies, but it could apply to other areas within your business that where the federal contractor rule does not apply. So uh, again, no overlap in coverage, but it's intended to capture everybody one way or the other. Thank you. And then um, this last question we have in is for Dan. Um, is an employee awaiting for a test result to eligible, um, is an employee awaiting a test result eligible to work or ineligible for work? Sure. So um, OSHA, OSHA's ETS recognized, um, or well, it states that that they've looked into it and they're they're confident that uh, we have more than sufficient testing supplies um, uh, to uh, for for employers and the additional for the, to complete the additional tests that this ETS is going to require. Uh, but they they've acknowledged that there may be circumstances where test results. Either tests are unavailable or test results are delayed, uh, particularly in the context of, of a PCR test that gets sent away to the lab. So, um, provided that that an employer is is um, you're working in good faith to comply with the ETS, uh, they're not going to they're not going to go and find someone if the the test results are are delayed, uh, or even if the test if if the tests are are not available, but in, if you found yourself in that situation, I think you'd want to document uh, your efforts that, that you made to uh, to comply and, and why uh, 
you know, the, the testing either wasn't available for a period of time or that the results of the test weren't known for a period of time. But somebody that, that you're waiting on test results can continue to work until that, that test comes back. All right, thank you. And um, the final question for today before we run out of time um, is for Robin. Will people who receive Medicaid be required to also take the vaccine under the CMS order? Um, the, the CMS rule only uh, applies to providers and staff that work for the providers that have uh, federal conditions or requirements of participation. It does not address individuals that are receiving services or Medicaid. Thank you, Robin. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Um, this is all the time we have. If you do have a question that did not get answered, um, please reach out to our attorneys directly. Um, for additional updates and resources from Voris, please visit voris.com slash coronavirus. Uh, this concludes our program. All right. Thanks for listening. That was the Voris at Work podcast. Please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast if you like what you're hearing. Uh, give us a rate and review. That helps us out. And as always, if you have questions or if you have topics you'd like for us to cover, feel free to reach out. And if you'd like to be a guest, likewise, reach out. We'd love to have you. Thank you. Thank you.